Well, I do hope you'll take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me just mention two quick things. Uh, Number one, be praying for our mission team that's in Kenya today, Kisumu, Kenya. We have 36 uh, Moberly members. Uh, Basically, my entire Amen Corner that normally sits right here in the 930 service is all over in Kenya this morning. But we want to be praying that the Lord will use uh, them on that mission trip. The second thing I want to mention to you is at the very end of this service, uh, we're going to be sharing a brief video uh, that shares about a new church-wide discipleship initiative that we're going to be launching in the month of August uh, called our, our Christian Formation Course. And so you're going to want to be part of that. You're going to want to learn more about it. Uh, it's going to be involving all of us. Pastors, ministers will be involved in teaching and leading, but it's really designed to help you grow deeper in your walk with Christ. And so if you're a brand new Christian and you want to know how to grow in Christ, these classes are for you. If you've been walking with Jesus for 60 years and you just want to go deeper, these classes are for you. So you'll want to know about that and you'll learn a little bit more about that at the end of the service. Well, hopefully you found your way to Matthew chapter 5 and we are starting a new sermon series today, walking verse by verse through the greatest sermon ever preached. Okay, now that's not the sermon I'm preaching. It's the sermon Jesus preached. And that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's actually the fullest and most extensive section of Jesus's teaching that you have anywhere in the Bible. And uh, so we're going to dive in today in what has traditionally been called the Sermon on the Mount. That's this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's because of Matthew 5, 1, and 2. If you look at uh, the first two verses of the chapter, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came uh, came to him, and then he began to teach them. So the the reason that the Sermon on the Mount is called the Sermon on the Mount is because of the location where it was delivered. You find out in the context of Matthew 4 that Jesus has been traveling all around Galilee. He's been preaching. He's been healing people. And all of these crowds have been coming to him. And so he withdraws. He pulls back from the crowd. He goes up onto a mountainside. His close disciples come and gather around him, and then he begins to teach them. So that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want you to notice that once he goes up on the mountaintop, he sits down to teach. Now, that's not because Jesus is tired and needs a place to sit. Uh, In the first century in Israel, if you were going to teach, like in the synagogue, if you were a rabbi, instead of standing up behind a pulpit to preach where you are all seated and I stand and preach to you, in uh, the synagogue, the, you would be standing basically for the entire worship service. You'd be singing while you're standing. You'd be praying while you'd, you're standing. You'd be standing while the Word of God is read. And when the teaching moment would come, the rabbi would sit down. And it was actually a symbol of, a, of the teacher's authority. And so that's what should be in your mind when you read verse 1, that Jesus sits down to teach. In other words, you're picturing someone here who's going to speak and to teach with authority. This was Jesus's reputation. You find in other places in the Gospels that people were stunned when they would hear Jesus teach because he taught unlike anyone else as someone with authority. And so he sits down, his disciples are gathered around him, he's on the mountainside, and then he begins to teach. And what you have in Matthew 5 through 7 is a kind of manifesto. It's a manifesto of the kingdom of God. The very last paragraph of Matthew chapter 4 says that Jesus was traveling all throughout Galilee, that he was preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing all of the people's diseases. So this is describing the content of Jesus' preaching. He is preaching 
about the kingdom of God. Okay, that's, that's his subject matter, the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God simply refers to the fact that God and God alone rules and reigns over all things. Can we say amen to that? God and God alone rules and reigns over all things. That's the kingdom of God. Anytime you see the word kingdom in the New Testament, you can write that above or below it. You can say the reign of God or the rulership of God. And this is the content of Jesus's preaching. He is walking around preaching that Jesus is king, that he reigns above all. And that is good news for us today. It's good news that no matter what is happening in Washington, D.C., Jesus reigns. No matter what's happening in the White House, no matter what's happening in the Supreme Court, no matter what's happening in Congress, no matter what's happening in Hollywood, no matter what's happening in the school board, Jesus is king and he reigns over all. Now, how does that shape our lives? If it's true that, that God rules and reigns over all things, how therefore should we live? Well, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus explaining what it looks like to live our lives under the authority of God's kingly reign. If it's true that He is king, how does that shape us? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you really ought to be thinking, uh, picturing in your mind a line being drawn in the sand. Those of you who remember your Texas history, you know all about the Alamo. You know that there were a group of Texans that were gathered in the Alamo and General Santa Ana gathered with his forces around the Alamo and he sent a message, surrender or die. And Colonel William Barrett Travis got his sword out in the Alamo and he drew a line in the sand to all of the Texans that were in the Alamo, it was, it was his way of saying, if you cross the line, you're with us, right? There, there's a line of demarcation here. You are either with us or you are not with us. The Sermon on the Mount is a line in the sand. It's a line of demarcation where Jesus is clearly defining what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom. If you're going to be with Jesus, this is what that life looks like and what a kingdom it is. It's an unusual kingdom. It is what I'm calling an upside-down kind of kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is different than any other earthly kingdom. It's backwards to the way our world works. When you look at how our culture operates, life in Jesus' kingdom looks counterintuitive. It looks backwards. It looks upside-down. Sometimes that's exactly what we need the most. The Bible's full of counterintuitive, backwards, upside-down wisdom, right? You read in the Bible that you can do more working in six days and resting in, on one than you can working seven days. That's counterintuitive, but it's true. The Bible tells us that you can do more with 90% of your income, giving away 10% than you can with 100%. Now, that's counterintuitive. It's upside-down, but it's true. The Sermon on the Mount functions this way. It is upside-down, but what you come to realize is that the ones that are upside-down, it's actually not Jesus, it's us. We live our lives like sloths. The sloth hangs upside down. Uh, and in his mind, he's living right side up. But you actually realize he's the one who's upside down. The rest of the world is right side up. You see, we live our whole lives thinking that our way of thinking is what's right side up. But when you see Jesus' teaching, which looks to us upside down, it's actually the kingdom is what is really right side up. Is that confusing enough? Okay. 
Now, let me just give you a 30,000-foot view of the Sermon on the Mount. Before we dive into the text, I want to just let you see how the sermon is structured, okay? The sermon Jesus teaches comes in four movements and a conclusion, and his conclusion is actually an invitation, so you know he's a Baptist preacher, okay? So movement number one is Matthew 5, 1 through 48, okay? The first chapter, Matthew chapter 5, and this is the content. This is what Jesus is teaching. He teaches how to move from a state of unrighteousness to a state of true righteousness, okay? That's what Matthew 5 is all about. Every one of us without Jesus Christ is unrighteous, and yet Jesus tells us if we want to see God, we have to be righteous. So how do we become righteous? Well, that's what Matthew 5 is about, how to move from unrighteousness to true righteousness. Now, Matthew chapter 6 is the second movement of the sermon. The first 18 verses, Jesus is going to begin to explain, once you've been made righteous, how should you exercise that righteousness? And what he's going to begin teaching about in Matthew chapter 6 is that once God makes you new, you know, all of us are tempted to show off. (laughs) When you've been made new and you're you have the righteousness of Christ and God's changed your life, there's a real temptation for us to show off our righteousness in front of others. And so Jesus actually addresses that in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, where he says, the way to practice your righteousness, once God makes you righteous, is not with what I'm calling a show righteousness, a righteousness to be seen by others. So he says, for instance, when you pray, don't pray to be seen by other people. Pray before your Father. Uh, who's in heaven, he sees you. When you give, don't give to show off to others. Give before your Father. Your Father in heaven sees you. So don't show off your righteousness when you pray or you give or you fast. The third movement of the sermon is the rest of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Is that right? 34. This is a rabbit trail. Okay, every good sermon needs a rabbit trail. Amen? You need a little side street. This is Jesus' rabbit trail, Okay. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, functions like a parenthesis in Jesus' argument. He says, listen, I I want you to pray and to give and to fast before God, not before others. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 34 is where Jesus anticipates some objections that we might have when we hear about giving or fasting. If I give, God's calling me to give, well, how will I provide for myself? How will I, you know, buy clothes and things of that nature? If I fast... Well, then how will I have food provided for me if I don't eat? So Jesus spends time saying, hey, don't worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you will wear. God's going to provide for you. So that's a rabbit trail, but it's a pretty, pretty good rabbit trail. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 34 is Jesus addressing, uh, anticipating and addressing, answering some objections that we might have to his teaching in chapter 6. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 is the, what is this, fourth? Fourth movement of the sermon. This is where Jesus picks back, back up on his original train of thought, which has to do with how we exercise the true righteousness of the kingdom. Chapter 6 says, don't exercise it with a kind of showy righteousness to be seen by others. Chapter 7, he's going to address another kind of temptation that we might face once, once we've become uh, Christ's, once we've been made righteous and made new, and that is to be self-righteous. When God has made you new and He's changed your life, sometimes we can be tempted to go around pointing fingers at all the unrighteous people out there and looking down our cold, righteous noses at them. And so Jesus is going to say, be careful that you don't judge others without first judging yourself. He's going to address the whole notion of self-righteousness in chapter 7. That's the fourth movement. And then He ends with a conclusion 
and an invitation. Every good sermon calls for a response, and that's what Jesus does. Chapter 7, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, Jesus lays out for the audience two ways to live, and He calls us to make a choice of how we're going to live. It's a line in the sand, a line of demarcation. You're either in or you're out. You're going to choose my way or your way. So He says, for instance, you can, there, there's two ways to build the house of your life. You can build a house on sand or build a house on a rock. You can choose two fruits, good fruit or bad fruit. You can choo- choose two roads the, 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 or two gates, the, the narrow gate or the wide gate. And Jesus says there are two options only. You can follow Jesus or you cannot follow Jesus. You can choose the way of the kingdom or the way outside of the kingdom. And Jesus ends the sermon by calling us to respond and choose to live our lives under his kingly rule. Okay, so that's the 30,000-foot view of the sermon. All of that was free. That's just introduction, okay? You ready to dive into the sermon itself? Let's do that. Well, we're going to jump in this morning by looking at the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at Matthew 5. We're going to see how far we get, okay? I think we got through six verses in the first service. We'll see how far we get. We're going to try to get through 16 this morning, okay? We're going to talk today about the table of contents to the Sermon on the Mount. You remember back in college, you ran out of time to study for that test, so you read the cliff notes. Anybody read the cliff notes? If you want the cliff notes to the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew 5, 1 through 16. This is the table of contents for the rest of the sermon. Everything else in the Sermon on the Mount relates to chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 in some way. Okay, so what we're going to dive into is, is a section known as the Beatitudes of Jesus. Okay, can we say that, be, that, that word together? The Beatitudes of Jesus. Now, Beatitude comes from a Latin word that just simply means blessed. And the reason that this section is called that is because Jesus repeats the word blessed eight times in these few verses. He's going to say, this is what the blessed life of the kingdom looks like. The way he begins to explain life in the kingdom, he says, listen, this is the life of blessing. When you think about life in the kingdom of God, that is the word that should come to your mind. It is the word blessing. This is what it means to live as a citizen of God's kingdom. It means to live with the blessing of God on your life. And the opening of the sermon is Jesus explaining how to live a life of God's blessing. Let me just ask you, how many of you would like to live with the blessing of God on your life? That's like all of us, right? We want the blessing of God on our life. To to live the blessed life means that we live a full life, that we live the good life, that we live a life of flourishing, that we live life as God designed it to be lived. James Montgomery Boyce called this section the secret to happiness. Wouldn't you like the secret to happiness this morning? It's Matthew 5, 1 and following. This is the secret to the blessing of God. Max Lucado says the blessing of God means that you enjoy the applause of heaven on your life. I want that. The applause of heaven on my life. A.M. Hunter says the Beatitudes of Jesus describe the character of those who living under God's fatherly rule made manifest in Jesus enjoy happiness even here and now, though its perfection belongs to the heavenly world. We all want that, don't we? We want that kind of blessing. But what you're going to discover as we look at the Beatitudes of Jesus is that that blessing is backwards. The blessing of the kingdom is upside down. When you think of the blessed life, what does it mean to be blessed? You can find some things out there in culture. If you go to Instagram, for instance, there are nearly 150 million posts using hashtag blessed. And if you look at Instagram, you'll see the world's conception of what the blessed life looks like. It looks something along the lines of health, 
wealth, prosperity. It looks like the big house, the body modification, the new Escalade, the Caribbean vacation. It looks like being rich and famous and popular and having an easy life. That's the blessed life. Hashtag blessed. Jesus' conception of blessing is something very different. Let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading verses 1 through 12 to begin. It says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the the people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the people of mercy, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Blessed are those who make peace with others, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who so love Jesus are so deeply passionate for Christ that even when they are persecuted because of righteousness, they are willing to endure it because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. You are blessed when you're insulted and persecuted, when people falsely say evil things about you, and they're not true. You are blessed when you endure that because of Jesus. And in fact, not only are you blessed, you're called to be glad and to rejoice Because you've got a reward, and it's a great reward stored up for you in heaven. And when you endure that kind of persecution, you stand in the long line of God's faithful servants. That's how they persecuted the prophets who came before you. So much to say about these. It's backwards, isn't it? It's like the opposite of the way we think of blessing. We think of blessed life being rich, famous, popular, happy, easy life. Jesus says... When you're poor in spirit, when you mourn, when you're humble, when you hunger and thirst, that's where my blessing is associated. Now, the Beatitudes are fairly simple to understand. There's eight of them. Like the Ten Commandments, you can divide them into two parts. The first four have to do with our relationship with God. The the last four have to do with our relationship with other people. The eight follow a similar structure. There's a declaration of blessing. There's a description of the character of those who are blessed, right? So blessed are the poor in spirit. And then there's a promise that's given to those who have that character, right? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, There's a bookend to this. The first beatitude ends with the promise of the kingdom. The eighth beatitude ends with the promise of the kingdom. The first four beatitudes in the Greek New Testament all start with the same letter, the letter P, which is another sign that Jesus may have been a Baptist preacher. He alliterates his sermon. But I want to show you that what Jesus is explaining here in the first 12 verses is actually the secret to a life of blessing. If you want to live a life blessed by God, what does that look like? And what I want to point out to you this morning is that there are some, some attitudes you need to embrace, some actions that will result when you embrace those attitudes, and then there is an impact that's made on the world around you. Okay, so that's what we're going to do as we look at the text. I want you to think about those three ideas. The first thing is just to notice some attitudes that you need to embrace if you're going to live a life of spiritual blessing. The first four beatitudes describe some attitudes that we need to embrace in our relationship with God if we want to experience spiritual blessing. This is really describing a posture 
that we need to take before God if we want His blessing in our life. If you want to be blessed by God, there's a posture you need to assume. There's an attitude that you need to embrace. And I want you to see it in all four of these, the first four Beatitudes. Now, the way you need to read the Beatitudes is you need to not read them as like random statements. All eight of these statements, sometimes, you know, you can read uh, like the book of Proverbs. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, it seems like some of the Proverbs are kind of just like these random pieces of wisdom, almost like fortune cookies, you know, like a little wisdom here, a little wisdom there, almost like tweetable quotes of wisdom. Sometimes it's easy to read the Beatitudes this way, that they're somehow just sort of these random statements, but actually they're all logically connected. And I want you to see how they work and how this actually describes a spiritual posture that we take before God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The first beatitude is in verse 3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It doesn't mean that you are someone who's uh, financially poor necessarily. To be poor in spirit doesn't mean that your spirit is downtrodden, like that you're a depressed person or you have to go around like Eeyore, you know, doom, gloom, misery, woe is me. You know, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. That's not what what poverty of of spirit is. To be poor in spirit simply means this, that you recognize your spiritual poverty without Christ. Every single one of us without Jesus are spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually impoverished. We are poor in spirit. Uh, without Christ, our spiritual bank account is bone dry. When Amy and I got married, we were po. We couldn't even afford the extra O and the R. We were poor. Our bank account was empty. When I say we had no money, I mean we had zero dollars in the bank. Zero. I mean, I overdrafted our bank account two or three days before our wedding day. We were bankrupt. Without Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. That means that we do not have the spiritual resources that it takes to have a relationship with God. And the blessed life begins with that recognition. I don't have what it takes. If you want a relationship with God, the way to get one is not by commending yourself to God by saying, God, I've got it what it takes. Look at me. Look at my merit. Look at how, uh, how, uh, how much of a good boy I've been. Look at how I'm a righteous person. No, a relationship with God begins the opposite direction by saying, God, I have nothing in my hands to bring. God, there's nothing in me to commend me to you. There's no merit of my own. My spiritual bank account is bone dry. I don't have what it takes. That's where a life of spiritual blessing begins. Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12-step program, you begin by saying, I can't. He can. So let him. The pathway to spiritual blessing begins with this recognition. I don't have what it takes, but he does. Amen? One of my kids uh, saw something one time that they wanted to buy that they couldn't afford. My son saw a sports car. He told me he wanted to buy it. He was about this tall. Daddy, I want to buy that. It's like a $75,000 sports car. 
I said, great, buddy. How much money do you have? He said, I've saved $3. Buddy, it's not enough. We don't have the spiritual resources that we need. Our account is empty. If you want to live a life of spiritual blessing, you don't come to God and say, I can do it myself. This is the opposite of spiritual self-sufficiency. Blessing begins with a recognition, I don't have what it takes. Now, when you recognize your own spiritual poverty, that is going to lead you to something. Guess what it's going to lead you to? Beatitude number two. Blessed are those who, say it with me, mourn. See, mourning means to be broken over your sin. Another word for mourning is lamentation. It means, first of all, I recognize I don't have what it takes. I'm spiritually bankrupt, and therefore, I lament that fact. I am broken over that fact. I, I am mourning over that fact that I don't have what it takes. I'm, I'm not cheerful. I'm not prideful. I, I'm not celebrating. I'm, I am humbled and broken. A Amy and I used to live in Hobbs, New Mexico, and if you ever wanted to plant something into the ground, that ground was, was hard, and you had to break up that hard ground if you wanted to put something in there. Mourning is where God breaks that spiritual hard-heartedness in us. He, he says, look, see your true spiritual condition. Recognize that without Christ, you have no spiritual resources, and then, and then be broken over that fact. So, so a life to spiritual bl blessing begins with saying, I don't have what it takes, and then I'm broken over that. It begins with, first of all, a recognition of our true spiritual condition, but then a lamentation over that condition. It's what 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 means when Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. So I recognize my true spiritual condition without Christ, and then I'm broken over that. And this, guess what? Once I mourn over my sin, that leads me to beatitude number three. What's beatitude, beatitude number three? Blessed are those who are humble. You see, when I'm broken over my sin, I'm now humbled. That, that broken, brokenness of the spiritual hard-heartedness of my heart now produces a fertile soil where I am lowly and humble and ready to receive something that I don't have before. Humility is a kind of spiritual empty-handedness where we come to God and stay, instead of saying, God, look at, look at all the things I bring to you. Look at all the things that I bring to the table. Look at my spiritual resume. My hands are full, God. Pick me for your team. A process of, of taking this posture before God says the opposite. It says, God, I don't have what it takes, and I am spiritually broken over that fact, and now I'm humbled. I come to you not with full hands. I come to you with an empty-handedness to say, God, I need something. I need you to do something. Some of you grew up in liturgical traditions where you would come and, and uh, take the Lord's Supper and you'd, you'd come up to uh, the, the priest or the pastor and you would come with empty hands to receive the bread. There's something powerful in that picture. To say, I am coming empty-handed to God, needy for Him to do something in my life. Folks, you see how backwards and upside down this is? There are many churches you could attend this morning where you would hear the exact opposite of this. You would hear someone say, you know what? You're not that bad. There's really a champion in you. And you need to, you know, it's like the old army slogan, be all you can be. And our job as a church is to help you to have a positive self-image and discover the champion in you. 
and feel better about yourself. Folks, that's the opposite of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus actually begins by saying, you don't have what it takes. You should be broken over that, and you should come to God empty-handed, ready for him to do something you can't do for yourself. Which, by the way, is beatitude number four. Blessed are those who, say it with me, hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, the blessed life of the kingdom begins with a recognition of my spiritual bankruptcy that leads me to a place of spiritual brokenness that then humbles me to the point where I'm empty-handed, and now I become hungry and thirsty for God to do something. That's the secret to spiritual blessing. When you come to the end of yourself, when you come to the end of your resources, you realize you don't have what it takes. There's nothing you can bring to the table. You need God. And you come to God like someone who is starving to death. You come to God like someone who is thirsting to death. You become so broken over your own sin and broken over your spiritual emptiness that you, you run to God. The psalmist says, as, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, God. You come to God hungry and thirsty for Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. For Him to do for you what success in your career cannot do for you. For God to do for you what a body modification cannot do for you. For God to do for you what a relationship cannot do for you. For God to do for you what finances or pleasure cannot do for you. For God to do something for you that nothing else can do for you. And the secret to spiritual blessing, the secret to the happy life is coming to the end of your rope coming to the end of your resources, coming to a true recognition of your spiritual bankruptcy, because that's when God shows up. When you stop trying to do it on your own, when you stop saying, God, look at, look at my good moral effort. God, look at, look at what I can do. God, be pleased with me because of my behavior. God, be impressed with me because of my moral exertion. When you get tired of that and you just come to be real and honest and say, I don't have what it takes. I'm tired of trying. And I'm broken over that. And I'm humbled and empty-handed. And now I'm hungry for God to show up in my life and do what nothing else can do for me. When you come to that point, your life opens up to all the blessings of heaven. When you come to that point of desperation, where you're tired of trying to do it on your own and you're just hungry now for God to do something in your life. God opens the windows of heaven and He pours out blessing on your life. He won't do it as long as you think you've got what you need. He won't do it for you if you think you've got what it takes. He won't do it for you if you think that you're filled already. He'll only do it for you if you realize your bank account is bone dry and you're broken and you're humbled so that you're hungry. And when you get hungry for God, there's a promise. Did you notice all the promises in these verses? Look at the promise of verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's say this together. For they will be filled. Notice that's a promise. Not might be filled, not could be filled, will be filled. That's the promise. If you get hungry for God, God will fill you. If you come to a point where you recognize your spiritual emptiness without Christ, and you get hungry for God to show up in your life, 
God will fill you when you're empty. If you're hungry, God will make you full. If you're thirsty, God will quench your thirst. This text is a great, glorious gospel promise that if you're desperate for God, God is not gonna hold himself back from you. If you're eager for God to do something in your life, God is eager, able, willing, desirous to pour himself into your life, to fill what is empty, to satisfy your hungers, to do something for you that nothing else can do for you, to fill that hole. Do you feel empty? God can fill you to the full. Do you feel hungry? God can fill you to the full. Do you feel thirsty? Are you tired of searching for meaning and fulfillment and purpose and fullness and all the other things? If you get hungry for God, God will fill you up. Folks, look at the promises. If you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom. If you mourn, you'll be comforted. If you're humble, there's an inheritance of the earth for you. If you're hungry and thirsty, you will be filled. This is the essence of the good news of Jesus Christ. That your bank account without Christ can be bone dry, but if you come to Jesus, he'll deposit all of the riches of his righteousness into your account. That, that all of your emptiness will be replaced by his fullness. Without Christ, I stand before God as somebody who's spiritually bankrupt. But with Christ, my bank account is full. I have his deposited righteousness. Think about the way Psalm 23 puts it. My cup runneth over. God will fill you to the full. Folks, this is how you enter the kingdom. No one enters the kingdom thinking that they have it all together. Thinking that they can enter with their own righteousness. We need to realize that we are utterly unrighteous without Christ. The only way we can become righteous is through God's righteousness that he gives to us through the work of Jesus Christ. That's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. This is how you enter the kingdom. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news? Listen to me today. Isn't it good news that Jesus does not need you to have it all together? That's good news in my life. God, to come to God, sometimes people think, like, I need to get my life in order. You know, I kind of like to need to clean up and make myself presentable. Like your, your parents used to tell you when you go out to dinner, you know, make yourself presentable. Go back in there, comb your hair, brush your teeth, put on clothes. <laughs> sometimes we think we, that's how we have to have a relationship with God. I better clean up. I better kick the smoking habit or stop my drinking or stop whatever and clean myself up. If God's going to love me, if God's going to want me, I better be impressive to God. Jesus says, no, the, the, the pathway to blessing, the pathway to having the applause of heaven on your life actually is a recognition, I don't have what it takes. I don't have it all together. And I'm broken over that realization. And I'm humbled by it. I realize my own empty-handedness. And now I'm ready for God to do what I can't do for myself. That's grace. And that's where the life of the kingdom begins. It's this posture that you embrace. Now, once you embrace that posture, it results in certain priorities in your life. Once you embrace those attitudes, there are some actions that result. Okay, now I wish we had more time to talk about all four of the next Beatitudes, but I just want you to notice the transition here in verses 7 through 12, Jesus is now going to say, okay, once you've 
gone through the spiritual process. Poverty in spirit, which leads to mourning, which leads to humility, which leads to hunger and thirst, which when you're hungry and thirsty, God will fill you. Once God fills you with his righteousness, everything about your life changes. Once Christ deposits his righteousness into your account, he changes you from the inside out, and everything about your life changes. Everything else in the Sermon on the Mount is really describing the result of what happens when you understand verses 3 through 6. Once you understand this process of coming to God, Him filling you with His righteousness, making you new from the inside out, verses 7 all the way through the end of chapter 7 is Jesus just explaining the implications of it. This is how it begins to flesh itself out in your life. Have have you noticed the cicada bugs, the little locusts, little grasshoppers all, all around, how they leave their little old skins everywhere? That's a picture of the gospel. Jesus changes us from the inside out so that we break off that old shell, that old man, that crusty, old, nasty, sinful self is left behind because God has made us new from the inside out. And now everything about our life changes. And so that's what is described in the rest of the Beatitudes as well as the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just look at what Jesus says will begin to happen to you. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, but they'll be shown mercy. Once you understand God's grace... You'll become a person of mercy towards others. Once you understand how merciful God has been to you, you'll become merciful to other people. How will God change you through His grace? Once you really understand how spiritually bankrupt you were, and yet God showed grace and mercy to you, then when you notice the spiritual poverty of the people around you, you treat them with gentleness and mercy, because that's how God treated you. So you become a person of mercy. You also become someone who's pure in heart. Notice that in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, I don't have to impress you with my righteousness, because I recognize that righteousness is a gift from God. It's not something I've achieved or earned or belongs to me. Now, I seek to please God with a pure heart. I can be honest and real about who I am. I don't have to, like, impress you. I'm I'm now pure in heart because of the righteousness of Christ. Number three, you become a person of reconciliation. Look at verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. When Jesus changes you from the inside out, not only do you become a person of mercy, not only do you become someone who's pure in heart, but you become a person of reconciliation. How can you become a peacemaker? Because you know that God can be reconciled to those who are spiritually bankrupt. And if God can be reconciled to the spiritually bankrupt, then you can become an agent of reconciliation in the lives of other people. And then fourth, when God's grace changes you because of this posture that you take before him, you become so in love with Jesus and so committed to Christ that you become willing to endure opposition to your faith. Look at what happens in verse 10. He says, blessed are you when because of righteousness you become a persecuted person for the kingdom is yours. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. What happens when you really get a hold of God's grace is that you become the kind of person whose faith is so resilient that even if you encounter opposition to your faith, you are willing to endure it. And not only are you willing to endure it, you're even willing to rejoice in it. You notice that's what he says in verses 11 and 12? You're glad and you rejoice because you actually realize that you are being persecuted just like the prophets who came before you. This is part of what it means to cross that line in the sand and to say, I'm with Jesus no matter what. 
I'm going to live under his rule and reign no matter what. Even if there's persecution that comes into my life, I will not only endure it, I'll rejoice in it because of him. So this is what your life begins to look like when you are hungry for the righteousness that God wants to fill you with. It changes everything about your life from the inside out. It, notice Notice the, the relationship between the first four and the last four. The first four have to do with your relationship with God. The last four have to do with your relationship with others. When your relationship with God is right, it's going to change the relationships you have with the people around you. Amen? It's like what C.S. Lewis called the good infection. The gospel's contagious. God does something in your life, and now it begins to spill out over into all of the other relationships in your life. That's why Jesus says what he says next. I told you there's some attitudes you need to embrace. There's some actions that result when you embrace those attitudes, but then there is an impact that is made in the world around you. Notice just briefly what Jesus says in verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Here's what I think verses 13 and 16 are talking about. It's talking about the impact that is made by people who live out the Beatitudes. If you really begin to live a life that looks like verses 3 through 12 the impact that you're going to make in the world is going to look like verses 13 through 16. If you embrace poverty of spirit, I don't have what it takes. I'm broken over that. Now I'm humbled and hungry and thirsty for God to fill me with His righteousness. And then He fills me with His righteousness through Christ so that I become a person of mercy and my motives become pure and I become a person who's a peacemaker and someone who's willing to endure in the midst of persecution no matter what comes. When I live that kind of life, I make an impact on the world. Jesus uses two metaphors, salt and light. Here's the thing, the connection between salt and light. You can't miss them. Have you ever had too much salt in your food? First time I ever made cookies, I misread how much salt to put in. There's a difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon. I found that out the hard way. A tablespoon of salt is too much salt. Blah. You can't miss it. It's salty. It makes an impact. People will say, well, it's used to flavor. That's true. It's used to purify. That's true. It's used to preserve. That's true. All those things are true. But here's the thing. It makes an impact. It makes a difference. It's noticeable. Same thing with light. If all the lights went off in here and someone lit a match, you can't help but see it. It makes an impact. Jesus says, when you live this way, you're going to be salty and you're going to be lit. You will make an impact. You'll make a difference. And through you, people will see the goodness of the Father. Do you notice the purpose, verse 16? So that they may see your good works, but give glory to the Father. I love windows. I used to have an office in a church basement that had no windows. It was suffocating. Sometimes I'd have to just walk up, take a break, just walk up to the next floor just to look out the windows. Jesus is saying, when you live life under my rule and reign, this kind of way, this upside down life, your life becomes like a window through which people around you see the goodness of the Father. 
It'll, it'll only work this way. If you, if you walk around in spiritual pride thinking you have it all together and you don't need anybody and blah, 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 that's a foggy window. It's a broken window. People can't see clearly through it. But if you'll embrace the Beatitudes, say, Jesus, I'm, you know, look, the way of the kingdom, it's backwards. The way up is the way down. If you want to travel high, you've got to walk low. If you want the crown, you've got to embrace the cross. If you're willing to embrace a cross-shaped life, people will look through you and your life and they'll see the goodness of the Father. That's the blessed life. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, make it so in us. May you remove anything from us that would keep us from you. Help us to see our desperate need for you. Jesus, we're thankful for the gift of your righteousness. Help us to live it out in a way that glorifies the Father. We pray in Christ's name, amen.